0: A warm welcome to First Move and a whirlwind Wednesday ahead on the program, including the debt ceiling bill clearing a crucial vote test. Can U.S. Congress put default fears firmly to rest? Meanwhile, Jamie Dimon sees no decoupling between Beijing and the West. And in AI land, NVIDIA's rally shows investors remain utterly obsessed. But now we're talking AI Armageddon, too leaving tech leaders and more a little stressed. Later in the program, Brad Smith, Vice Chair and President of Microsoft, will join us. Remember, Microsoft is a big investor in OpenAI. That's the firm that unleashed ChatGPT on the world. Brad also has strong views on how we should regulate this technology. And also, does he think we're headed for some kind of human extinction without that regulation? We'll be asking. Plus, Vault Typhoon. Yes, that's the code name for a Chinese hacking group that Microsoft has said is working to disrupt critical communications between the U.S. and its allies. We'll be discussing that with Brad too. Now, from hacking malevolence and artificial intelligence to debt ceiling relevance. U.S. futures and European shares are a touch softer, as you can see there, ahead of yet another key vote to raise the debt ceiling more On the details on that coming up. In the meantime, a weaker picture too in parts of East Asia. Hong Kong shares now in bear market territory tied to weaker Chinese data. The index of factory activity there falling to a five-month low. No surprise perhaps that China in the meantime is courting American executives this week and making soothing noises about the ease of doing business there. Jamie Dimon saying today that JP Morgan is in China for the long haul. Elon Musk's Tesla is a China long hauler, too. Musk meeting with China's foreign minister and commerce minister during his Beijing visit. Musk reportedly saying the U.S. and Chinese economic interests resemble, quote, co-joined twins. More China chatter later in the show. But first, in another day of nail-biting action in Washington, D.C., the House, the U.S. House, is set to vote on the bill to raise the U.S. debt ceiling and avoid a first ever debt default event. The bill picked up key momentum yesterday, but with dissenters on both sides, as we've long discussed, no time for complacency, as Lauren Fox reports.
1: I think you're going to continue to see that vote grow. Uh, that's what happens with any major bill.
0: Congressional leadership working
2: to lock in enough votes to pass a bill to raise the debt ceiling negotiated by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden.
3: Members from all across the conference shared their support for this important bill, and they shared their support for Speaker McCarthy's strong and effective leadership.
2: The bill narrowly made it out of the Rules Committee Tuesday night with a 7-6 to six vote.
3: The eyes have it.
2: With two Republicans from the far-right Freedom Caucus voting against the advancement.
4: If you're out there watching this, every one of my colleagues be very clear, Not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal.
2: Republican Rep. Dan Bishop says he's lost confidence in McCarthy over his handling of the bill's negotiation and is threatening a vote of no confidence.
4: It seems inescapable to me given what has occurred and the way he was the steward of Republican unity and he blew it to smithereens.
2: Many congressional Democrats also remain undecided. I'm still
3: undecided. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm angry that we are being held hostage. Very disappointed. You know, very disappointed. You know,
5: the, the mansion pipeline uh, work requirements. I'm undecided. I'm still considering.
2: Another factor that could dissuade some members is the Congressional Budget Office's score for the bill. The CBO says the bill will reduce budget deficits by $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. But new food stamps provisions would increase enrollment and increase spending for that program by more than $2 billion during that period.
4: The simple answer is the CBO got it wrong.
2: The Rules Committee was the first hurdle in a long process to get this bill through both chambers of Congress, which is five days before the Treasury Department says the nation defaults on its debt. Republican Senate Whip John Thune believes at least nine Republicans will vote yes, which, if Democrats remain unified, would get the bill the 60-vote threshold it needs
1: in the Senate. I hope the House moves quickly, and I'll make sure the Senate moves quickly the moment this bipartisan bill is sent to us.
0: And a, quote, massive strike in Russia's Belgorod region. That's what the regional governor described, saying at least four people were injured by shelling. The Kremlin spokesman, meanwhile, has called the situation alarming. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, the war increasingly spilling into Russian territory. The Ukrainian government still adamant they know nothing about this.
6: Yeah, Julia, they traditionally have not claimed responsibility for anything that happened across the border into Russia. That is, I think, partly because of the delicate situation that creates with their allies who continue to donate weapons on the assurance that they won't be used to strike inside Russia, that's certainly a red line for the United States. But what we're seeing is an increase in shelling across the border, particularly in the Belgrade region, an increase in intensity and in the area uh, that it covers. There was four injuries, as you said, uh, in the early hours of this morning in a a massive strike, in the words of the governor of that region. We've just heard of another injury in a different part of the region, someone hit by shell fragments while they were in their car. And this on top of uh, a report from the governor of that region on Tuesday saying that he'd seen more than 200 hits uh, by Ukrainian mortar and artillery uh, fire in the last twenty four hours so really over the last twenty four to forty eight hours a significant uptick in that acti- in, the, in activity in that region and we 're seeing other elements across the border as well. Down south in the Krasnodar region, two oil refineries uh, were hit supposedly by drones. One saw a fire uh, break out. The Russians have accused Ukraine of shelling over the border in the Bryansk region, which is up in the north, just north uh, of Kiev. Uh, So really a wide area being covered. Uh, It does seem uh, like the effects of this war are now spilling further than we've seen before.
0: It was interesting, Claire, too, to see um, Vladimir Putin's comments this week suggesting that Ukraine has chosen the path of intimidation, that Kiev is provoking them to mirror actions. We'll reiterate that the Ukrainians, as you've said and repeated, that are denying any involvement in this. But and one could argue who's mirroring who
6: in this case, the uh, messaging to which audience I think important mm-hmm. here. Yeah, and the Kremlin reiterating today, the Kremlin spokesperson saying that, you know, there's been no outrage from the West as Ukraine, he says, has been shelling civilian areas. This is a tactic that we've seen certainly rhetorically from Russia. All along, they take the accusations that are leveled against them with good reason, as we've seen them uh, attack civilian areas within Ukraine and level them back uh, on Ukraine to sort of manufacture the sense, certainly within Russia, that they are somehow the victim, that they are uh, under siege. And this is, you know, to to play at home to a population that wasn't expecting this war uh, to go beyond a few weeks, let alone. 15 months that we're now in. So it is part of that to try to keep the population uh, on the side and to create the sense, the argument that they have also been uh, sort of reiterating that this is a war that they are fighting not only with Ukraine, but of course, with NATO and Ukraine's Western allies.
0: Klaas mm. Bastian, great to have you with us. Thank you.
6: And on to a rare admission of failure from North
0: Korea. Pyongyang says an attempt to launch a military satellite into orbit failed after the rocket crashed into the sea. These images show what's believed to be debris from that rocket recovered by the South Korean military. The satellite mission, based on technology used in North Korea's long-range missiles, was the regime's latest violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Paula Hancocks has more.
7: Early morning sirens in both Seoul and Okinawa warned residents of North Korea's latest launch, a military satellite launch that failed. Pyongyang said there were engine problems on its second stage. South Korea's military picked up what it believes is debris from the rocket, 200 kilometers off its west coast. North Korea admitting failure is rare, especially this quickly, but it says it will try again as soon as possible.
4: North Korea's continued actions threaten the safety and security of our country, the region and
8: the international community.
7: Pyongyang says it has put satellites into space before, The most recent, in 2016, claimed to be a weather satellite. It's unclear if the satellite ever worked. Experts say this attempt shows Pyongyang is potentially a long way from having a useful satellite program.
8: We're probably talking 10 or 20 satellites that they would need to put up in order to have continuous surveillance over the Korean peninsula and the surrounding oceans. They're a long way away from that. They can't even get one satellite up.
7: There was political fallout in Seoul as an air raid siren and an emergency text alert urged residents to evacuate, only to be told 20 minutes later it was a mistake. Seoul's mayor has apologized for any confusion. I thought it
2: was an urgent situation and soon it turned out to be false, so I was very confused. Such important issue must be delivered cautiously, but this time it wasn't.
5: At the moment, the Korean government seems to have a backward system on issues as warnings and disasters, so it needs to be improved, but it seems it's not going well.
7: An erosion in trust for some of the emergency alert system in a country still technically at war with its northern neighbour. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un has been clear about his desire for a military satellite, visiting what state-run media described as the finished product earlier this month. North Korea gave an official maritime warning for this launch, as well as an expected flight path, something it does not do for its regular missile launches. But Pyongyang insists that it needs a military satellite in order to be able to track and monitor the, quote, dangerous military acts of the United States. Paula Hancock's CNN, Seoul. A court in New York has granted the billionaire
0: Sackler family immunity from legal action over the opioid epidemic, in exchange for $6 billion to be spent addressing the crisis. The appeals court ruling means the family, which owns Purdue Pharma, is shielded now from current and future lawsuits. Purdue began selling oxycodone in the 1990s and branded it as a non-addictive painkiller. The company has been accused of fueling an opioid crisis that has killed more than half a million people over the last 20 years. Jean Casares joins us now on this. Gene, I think there's probably mixed emotions for the, for the families of those involved. Um, sadness in perhaps that there is no future liability, but also relief that perhaps it's over and the money now is key to address the crisis.
3: It's so true what you're saying, and the justices even reflect that in the opinion that when you have a bankruptcy action that is so huge and with so many ramifications that you cannot cover everything, you do the best you can for the whole. And it's interesting because if you look at the backstory of all of this, Purdue Pharma was the company Sacklers, the individuals, filed bankruptcy in 2019. And according to this opinion, the Sacklers said, here's what we'll do. We will file bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma, but we want immunity from all of these actions that are out against us personally. And according to the opinion, there was $40 trillion worth of civil actions against Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. So that's how this case began. The bankruptcy action was filed. The bankruptcy judge agreed that any individual claims would be folded over into the bankruptcy proceeding. But all these years have really been negotiating how much the Sacklers would personally pay, because they said, we will personally pay and give you billions of dollars to go into the bankruptcy proceedings of our own personal funds. And that amount reached its height, and that's when the agreement was made of $6 million. And that's going to be for individual claims, it's going to be a opioid abatement. Uh, procedures, what can be done in communities, and then also medication for opioid emergencies. Now, here is a produced statement they issued at the conclusion of all of this because it was appealed, and they were actually victorious in this. They said, our creditors understand that the plan is the best option to help those who need it the most, the most fair and expeditious way to resolve the litigation, and the only way to deliver billions of doll- dollars in." Value specifically to fund opioid crisis abatement efforts. And so that is where we are at this point. Now, there, as you said, many are not happy. The attorney general for California, for instance, California will be getting $500 million, but he believes that individual claimants should still be able to sue. But here's the issue that can be locked up in litigation for years, and they won't get their money. And with this, they will.
0: Yeah. And that's the key, isn't it? It's this balance of timing as well. And for the families involved, do you fight for years and perhaps get less money in the end versus settling for something today. These are tough True. decisions. When you mentioned that 40 trillion dollars, though, the hair on my arm rose, the difference between the level of claims out there and, and in the end what they've settled for here. Um, Just quickly, Jean, what about for the family themselves? I mean, They gave a lot of money. They donated a lot of money over the years. They've got
3: names on buildings. What happens to, to things like that? This is so interesting because this is a part of the decision. The names on the buildings or schools or whatever, there is a right for municipalities or private institutions to remove the Sackler name off of any building at any time. But there are two requirements. Number one, the family has to be given notice before it's done. And number two, as part of taking that name off, they cannot defame them or focus on disparaging things about the Sackler family. It is done really sort of just uh, automatically with no comment.
0: Yes. Let the families involved remove the names and see how they do. Jean, yeah. thank you so much for that. Thank Kim you. Is there? Great to have you with us. We're back up to this. Stay with the First Move. Welcome back to First Move, Tesla and Twitter boss Elon Musk in Beijing this week for talks with the Chinese foreign minister. Taking a Tesla, of course, for the trip. The government saying China will continue to create a better market oriented law based international business environment for Tesla and other foreign companies. Quote Mark Stewart joins us now on this. Fascinating to me, the idea of um, business as we well know, transcending what can be at times very bitter Mm. politics Mm. between these two nations. Um, And the business leaders clearly not shy about it because Elon Musk's late to the party, quite frankly, over the past few months. Um, What have they been promised, Mark, really, by Beijing?
4: Beijing is promising fairness. They're saying if you come to China you will have a fair environment to compete. As you mentioned, the foreign minister gave some remarks. He talked about creating a healthy relationship between the U.S. and China. And the fact remains, both sides really need each other. I mean, there are benefits from both the Chinese economy and the American economy that both can benefit from. In fact, we heard Elon Musk uh, make some remarks today going as far as saying he's against the decoupling of China. But let's also face it, Musk really has some strong interests in China. Number one, manufacturing. He recently announced plans to build this mega- battery factory, that's going to be important. I mean, despite some of the issues we've had with China and manufacturing in the past, it still has the capacity and it still has that valuable access to ports. And then, Julia, the other thing that Elon Musk needs is market share. The EV market in China is extremely competitive. Uh, Musk and Tesla are facing some competition, so he really he really does need to uh, make his mark there. With all of that said, you were talking about how business can often transcend politics. I mean, it was just an hour ago, Julia, I was live on CNN talking about how a Chinese military jet intercepted, came very close to a US aircraft over the South China Sea. That is happening as Elon Musk is on the ground talking about a future, an economic future with China. So there is no question we have economic relationships, we have political relationships, and that's what we're seeing right here. By the way, Musk, not alone, the CEOs of Starbucks and J.P. Morgan, as you well know, are also with him.
0: Yes, exactly. But we don't talk about other news on this show like that. When you're a CEO in, in Beijing, you just move <laughs> swiftly on and carry on with those meetings. Um, it's a great <laughs> point. Mark Stewart, thank you so much for that. Okay. The disgraced founder of the failed blood testing startup Theranos has now reported to federal prison. We were discussing it on the show yesterday. Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to more than 11 years behind bars for defrauding the company's investors. CNN's Brian Todd reports.
8: In a light brown pullover and jeans, Elizabeth Holmes reports to the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas. A far cry from when Holmes, sporting black turtlenecks, was compared to Steve Jobs and dazzled at one media event after another. I've always believed that the purpose of building a business is to make an impact in the world. Holmes is starting to serve a sentence of more than 11 years after being convicted last year of multiple charges of defrauding investors while she ran her Silicon Valley company, Theranos.
3: We've seen uh, frenzies, hoaxes uh, throughout American history. This one ranks in the top 1% for the speed of the rise and the speed of the fall.
8: In 2003, Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford University at only 19 years old to run Theranos, a startup that claimed to have created new technology that could accurately test for a range of physical conditions using just a few drops of blood. So this is the little tubes that we collect the, the samples in. We call them the nanotainer.
5: They're about this big.
8: Part of the problem, analysts say, was that Elizabeth Holmes was never really qualified in the field.
3: She was not a hematologist. She was not a biologist. She was not a biochemist. She was a beginning engineer who dropped out of school at the very beginning of her career. She had no scientific or engineering background or know-how to do this, so this whole thing was was a scam.
8: Yet she still was able to sell the idea to several high-profile investors. Theranos was valued at about $9 billion at its peak. It all began to unravel in 2015 when a Wall Street Journal investigation revealed that Theranos' claim that it conducted hundreds of tests using its unique proprietary technology was false.
3: The Theranos proprietary device was only used for 12 tests, uh, 12 finger stick tests, and that all the other uh, 250 or so tests on the Theranos menu were uh, processed on commercial machines, uh, you know, off-the-shelf machines that anyone can buy that any lab uses.
8: And John Kerry Roo's investigation found the few tests that were conducted on Theranos' own unique technology were not accurate. Investors backed out. Theranos dissolved in 2018. Holmes pleaded not guilty to fraud charges, but she and her ex-boyfriend, former Theranos COO Ramesh Sunny Balwani, were convicted. Kerry Rue once described Elizabeth Holmes as a chameleon who got caught up in the heady culture of Silicon Valley.
3: I think the cause of her downfall is that she courted the press too much. Uh, she raised her profile too much and she courted publicity too much.
8: Despite having fallen so far, Elizabeth Holmes told the New York Times she plans to work on healthcare related inventions while she's in prison. She said, quote, I still dream about being able to contribute in that space. Brian Todd, CNN, Washington.
0: If you want to understand more about that story, Bad Blood by John Carreyou is the book you need to read. Okay, straight ahead. Industry players are warning of AI extinction, and I'm not talking about the technology itself becoming extinct, just to be clear. How can we ensure humans remain in control? Microsoft president Brad Smith is the man with a plan. Plus, turning the tide on plastic pollution, here's a clue more recycling? Not the answer. We'll discuss. Welcome back to First Move. We're still in the very early stages of both understanding and harnessing the power of artificial intelligence. But it's coming and the pace of change is already vast. And along with it, the cries for restraint are growing ever more insistent. Just in the past two months, industry voices have gone from saying we need a six-month pause to reevaluate to yesterday's warning that AI could be the death of us, quote... Among those most alarmed are also some of those with most to gain financially. And one of the key beneficiaries is also one of the strongest voices pushing for smart and swift regulation to ensure we get this right. At Microsoft, Vice Chairman and President Brad Smith is calling for five key steps a government safety framework, guardrails, safety breaks for AI systems tied to critical infrastructure, a broad legal framework, the need for greater transparency and open access to AI, and the private sector working with governments to prevent a worsening of the inequality society already faces. Not an easy task, but I'm pleased to say Brad Smith joins us now. He's also the author of Tools and Weapons: The Promise and Peril of the Digital Age. Brad, welcome to the show as always. Um the Thanks, overarching Julia. theme for me. Welcome. The overarching theme for me in your blog was that humans have to remain in charge and that those who own and operate AI systems have to remain accountable to everyone else. Would you agree that's the baseline?
1: I think, at least as we are thinking about it, absolutely it is a baseline. I mean, AI has so many benefits it can bring to the world, but we have to keep it under human control and we have to advance safety together with innovation. That does require a baseline. I think both voluntary steps by those who create it and and, and deploy it, and, and we will need guardrails in the form of new laws and regulations. So we need to move all of this forward together.
0: Do you think the messaging is important, though. If I look at some of the AI tools that you're adopting in, in Microsoft's programs, the use of the word co-pilot sort of resonates with me. This is and should be about enhancing us as humans, our productivity, our efficiency. It's about arming us better and not sort of it spiraling out of control.
1: Absolutely. It, it's interesting. We actually spent a lot of time talking about what word to use. And it really was this decision to embrace the word copilot that for us described what we should want AI to do. Help humans do things better, no, not replace humans or take them out of the loop. And so, you know, when I think about helping a doctor identify a strain of cancer that may be undetectable to the human eye, or something as straightforward as helping us create a PowerPoint presentation. Let's not check our brains at the door.
0: Oh, we just lost Brad there. We're going to try and um, reestablish connection with him. I'm going to take a quick break while we try and fix that. The joys of live TV. Stay with us. Plenty more to come on First Move, I hope. Welcome back to First Move, and we're going to move on for now. Plastic waste is everywhere, damaging our ecosystems and our bodies. According to OECD projections, global plastic waste will almost triple by 2060, with around half of it ending up in landfill. The question is what's the fix? Well, This week, 193 nations are meeting in Paris to discuss some solutions. And ahead of the talks, the UN Environment Programme released a blueprint for cutting plastic waste by 80% by 2040. Now, there's clearly fierce debate about how best to tackle this problem. But our next guest says we cannot recycle our way out of this mess. We are working against the clock. We have
5: to end plastic pollution. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is a once in a planet opportunity.
0: And we only have one planet. Joining us now is Inga Anderson. She's the Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme. Executive Director, Inga, fantastic to have you on the show. I think there are many ways to tackle this, but what's clear, I think, also is that we need scale and there's still debate. Why do you think your blueprint is the best way to reduce plastic pollution? Well, I think we need every solution on the table and that
5: begins of course with eliminating the unnecessary plastic the plastic that frankly we use for five minutes and then we just discard it because think of it this material is quite precious isn't it we take it out of the belly of the earth as a as a, as an oil product if you like and we make it into this marvelous material that yes we're using and it's very useful but to just throw it away it doesn't make any sense so first Eliminate the unnecessary And our kids are telling us already Don't take the straw, mom uh, I have your bag, mom You don't need to get a, a, a plastic bag, etc And also think about blister packaging To prevent theft, in fact Or think about when you order something From an online company How it, too much plastic comes in the cardboard box These kind of things They're easy to eliminate But after that, of course Yes, we do need to replace as well Does everything have to be plastic? Can it be recycled paper or cardboard? Uh, that's another conversation. And then when it comes to plastic, which we will use, we are not against plastic, let's make sure that it actually does get recycled and doesn't end up in the landfill or in the incinerator or let alone in our oceans and our open environment. And that is what UNEP is saying about this report. So we need to reduce, obviously, and then we need to think about this as a valuable material that we can, we will recycle.
0: Is this also a message, though, to the global plastics and and petrochemical industry that we'll be lobbying for a watering down of this, that they as a sector have to adapt? They have to shrink, quite frankly, because even if we scale up the recycling solutions to the point, I think, that stands out for me in the report, it's simply not the answer. The problem is they're quite powerful in lobbying for, for survival.
5: Well, I think what we're seeing with the global plastics industry is that, you know, they are also solution providers. That seat that you sit in in the metro going to work or the seat, my steering wheel and my seat in my car or the light switch that I turn on, etc. Plastic is everywhere and it's an exceptionally useful material, including for shipping because it's light. Um, but we need to be sure that the kind of jobs and opportunities that will come with a circular economy will can be captured and included. By the plastics industry, who will uh, have to step into circularity as opposed to using virgin plastic today? It is kind of absurd that virgin plastic is so much cheaper than circular plastic. um, But there's no reason why uh, those companies cannot produce the circular stuff as opposed to the virgin stuff. These are the gear levers that governments have at their disposal. These are the gear levers that we are going to be discussing in this uh, negotiation for a new plastic treaty. And I have every faith that we will arrive.
0: Um, It's good to hear. We exist in a system, though, where today richer nations pay poorer ones to dump their waste on them, you have waste pickers, you have communities that are hurt by dumping, by the burning of waste in certain parts of the world. Is there enough representation of of those people and communities at these talks, again, to ensure that we don't see a watering down? I know there has to be a, a meet in the middle point somehow, but the planet and people require that that tough solutions are found in these talks.
5: Indeed, we had about 900 or so uh Uh, government no 690 or so government representatives registered and we had about 1700 NGOs uh, and observers registered of course you can never have enough voice I was very happy to meet with the waste pickers union there are 20 million waste pickers across the world and they are the global sanitation force and it's critical that their voice is recognized Um, Yes, dumping does happen in some locations. It is illegal and it is against a convention uh, that most countries have signed up to. But a lot of plastic production happens also in the Global South and there are lots of jobs Uh, In that sector. So it is embracing a new economic uh, opportunity with different jobs and cleaner opportunities. Now, we need to find a just transition for the waste pickers so that when we roll out recycling and when we roll out elimination, those folks who today sustain their families from being that global sanitation workforce working in very difficult and dangerous circumstances are those that will land the new jobs. That's why I'm very happy to have had the waste pickers present. I would have liked to have many more. The next round will be in Nairobi, Kenya. There, the distances to travel will be fewer, it would be shorter by, for many in the African continent, and we hope to have many more represented. Good to hear.
0: Last month, the G7 nations, the U.S., Japan, Germany, among others, committed to zero plastic waste Uh, by 2040. I know in particular the United States is not part of this coalition, but clearly they're, they're supportive in financial terms. What about nations, big nations, and I'm choosing them out of a hat now, India and China? What role do they play in this and how are their voices influencing action? I think all of the large nations that
5: are that are in the G20, let's take it at that level, are looking at this with great interest and are looking at this uh, also to see, okay, so how will it work for our economy? We have a plastics economy. You mentioned some nations there that that drives jobs and opportunities right now and growth, etc. But we also cannot drown in a plastic soup in our environment, in our waterways, in our fish, in our oceans, Um, So how will we square that circle and how will we make that transition? I was very uh, encouraged by uh, countries in the broader negotiations beyond the G7. Some 50-odd-plus countries have signed up for what they call the high ambition coalition. I was also very encouraged that the U.S. and a number of Pacific countries have come together to showcase solutions. I think there's a lot of innovation out there. Yes, everyone will look at jobs because in any country, nearly any country you go, there is a plastics industry, north and south, east and west. But there is the same opportunity for a circular industry and for eliminating and replacing by say recycled paper, cardboard, and other ways of enveloping what we are trading uh, in in a safe material that has food hygiene, etc. So in, in 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 its in its conveyance. So I think. To all the engineers and all the designers and all the brand owners, heads up, time to get innovative, time to look at what it is that your industry can contribute, because we are going to have to deal with this. We're literally drowning in plastic and no one on any uh, political party wants to see that on their beaches, in their tourism or in their food that we buy in the supermarket. So a solution must be found.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm embarrassed by the amount of um, plastic waste um, that I create and I I recycle everything, but we, we all need to do more as individuals, too. I think that's the quote. We cannot drown in plastic soup. Action required. Inga, great to have you on. Inga Anderson, Executive Director of the United Nations Environment Programme. Fantastic to chat to you. We're back after this. Stay with First Move. Welcome back to First Move. And I'm pleased to say I'm going to take you back to our conversation about regulating artificial intelligence with Microsoft President and Vice Chair Brad Smith. And I'm pleased to say, too, that the technical revelations have now been solved. If I were being cheeky, I would say perhaps that was what AI thinks of uh, the future of regulation, Brad, by pulling the plug on us. Um, we were discussing, I'm joking, we were discussing uh, Microsoft Copilot and the importance of messaging around this as a support to human activity.
1: Well, and we chose the word co-pilot for Microsoft services that use AI for a reason. We really do want it to be something that helps people while keeping people in control. And if we all want some help going through our email or creating a PowerPoint presentation or addressing cybersecurity risks, We really want technology to make us better as human beings. We want to keep using our brains and ask better questions, get faster answers, express ourselves more clearly. But let's keep ourselves in charge. That's the purpose of all of this.
0: Yeah, as we were discussing before, that has to be the baseline. I think to a lot of people listening to that, it makes perfect sense. But then we rewind to what we got yesterday, and we have um, some of those... That are the strongest voices, the loudest voices, those that invest or, and have the most understanding, we assume, of artificial intelligence, talking about um, AI extinction. Um, I sort of wonder what the rest of us should think at this moment. Brad, can you give us uh, the benefit of your context? Are we
1: headed
3: no, for AI
0: I would, extinction?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that is imminent, and I don't think it's actually the first or most important problem we need to solve, but it's good to be clear-eyed about all of the things that might go wrong, and then let's just step back and think about every technology in the world that we use today, we even take it for granted, that does great things but could be dangerous. An elevator has a safety brake. Electricity has a circuit breaker. The school bus on which we put our children or a high-speed train has an emergency brake, it enables humans to stay in control and slow something down or turn it off. And we should have that for artificial intelligence as well, especially when it's controlling critical infrastructure, like the electricity grid or the water supply. And we ought to have it at multiple layers, both the application that is controlling something and the data center where it's deployed. That is frankly what we've been doing as human beings for 150 years for other technologies. Let's take everything we've learned and apply it to this technology as well.
0: Are the corporates involved the circuit breaker in this case or is government the circuit breaker? And can well, AI so learn to be better than the circuit breaker? I think that's... I think we need, we need
1: both companies and government and, frankly, civil society, NGOs, to all talk together. And we're going to need multiple layers. When you really study what works for us every day, what you find is two things that fit together. One is a technical standard, and the other is government regulation that requires everyone to apply the technical standard. This is true for a circuit breaker. It's it's true for the emergency brake in every bus, so let's bring industry together to help develop technical standards, and let's expect our governments to move quickly so that there is a common approach and we don't have the kind of divergence or a race to the bottom that would put safety at risk.
0: Oh, so two very important points there. Number one in your framework is um, government-led guardrails. You're having all of these conversations, whether it was speaking in U.S. Congress a, a week ago. think I believe you've been to the Vatican, too, and spoken to the Pope about this, too. So everybody's taking interest. Are we close enough in terms of the conversations, the urgency to be creating those guardrails quickly enough, Brad?
1: I think we are. And this is where I think rather than talk about you know slowing technology for six months, let's speed up safety conversations and take real action in the next six months. And already we're seeing this. We're, we're seeing even just today government leaders from the European Union in the United States at the Trade and Technology Council talk about advancing a code of conduct that would be applied on a voluntary basis. I think we should look in the United States to this Congress to do something before the end of this year. Every December, the Congress passes the National Defense Authorization Act, put in place some guardrails for this technology, including guardrails to protect the national security of the United States. So we are close enough to to start to take real steps.
0: Wow, that's huge. I mean, particularly for those that have been watching the debt ceiling negotiation debacle, the belief that something could be passed by the end of this year seems um, fanciful. You're actually confident that, that something could get done this year, something at least down on paper?
1: If we are focused yeah. and we prioritize the problems we want to address first and we're constructive we absolutely can take steps before the end of this year. If we try to boil the ocean and address every problem under the sun, then of course that becomes mission impossible. But this is technology that is moving, so let's move with the pace of technology and we can solve one set of issues in 2023. Let's put in place the guardrails to protect against, say, foreign cyber influence operations in the 2024 presidential election. We can then take other steps in 2024 and 2025. Look, that's how we innovate in the world of technology. Let's innovate in the same way in the world of technology law and regulation.
0: I read recently that the uh, OpenAI CEO said that he... Doesn't, you don't mind him coming to you with ideas and you talk about them and then you give him 17 better ones. Um, so I do hope people are listening to you. In hindsight, do you think technology like ChatGPT was unleashed too early on an unsuspecting consumer? Because to your point, we've sort of gone from a six month pause, which seemed nonsensical, particularly in light of the, the sort of geopolitics of the situation, to, you know, AI Armageddon, which is the other extreme. We sort of need to keep calm heads about this and act fast. Was it well, look, I do
1: think we should we should keep our wits about us. Yes. Let's prioritize. Look, when people talk about death by PowerPoint, they don't mean it literally. Um, and, you know, I do think that Sam Altman had a lot of good advice when he testified before the United States Senate. I don't think things have moved too early. The truth is, if you want to learn how technology actually works— You need to put it in the hands of real people and get real feedback. So it's good that we're having this conversation now. There was always going to be a point in time when suddenly people's eyes would open the way they did when they saw the iPhone from Apple in 2007 or the browser in the 1990s and suddenly realized that there was going to be this thing called the Internet. But I think this is how we learn and this is how we then act on what we're learning.
0: And and because I do want to talk about the upsides as well. What happens if we get this right for society? Well, I think
1: the upside is enormous and it will impact all of us in positive ways. It will give us access to better health care, will help us cure diseases, or let's remember we live in a world where there are 4 billion people that have a difficult time getting access to any doctor. So to have AI-powered assistance for medical services or for students, you know, we can bring economic development to the world more broadly. We can create better productivity growth in a world that is short on productivity growth, especially in the industrial world where populations are starting to actually decline. So the benefits are so substantial, and let's keep that in in one eye, if you will, and then address the safety issues in the other. And that's how I think we make the most of the promise and protect against the perils.
0: Yes, smart advice. We can't limit the future opportunities on this, but we just have to um, limit the potential downsides. Um, I could talk to you this for another half an hour, but I want to ask about Activision Blizzard, if you don't mind. Overwhelming global regulatory approval now, but still in a fog um, with the U.K. and the United States. Some might call it co-conspiracy. What can you tell us, Brad, if anything, you're going to push ahead?
1: Well, you know, fundamentally, we have an acquisition that we think will bring more competition and more access to games for consumers on a global basis. And that's why we now have approval from almost 40 countries with more than 2 billion people for this to proceed. And there are some regulators that have expressed concerns, and we get it. We want to address those concerns. I'm encouraged that we were able to have a solution for the European Union that lets the acquisition go forward again with guardrails to ensure that everyone gets access to these games for all kinds of cloud game streaming services and not Microsoft alone. Now, obviously we haven't not we have not yet succeeded in addressing the concern of every regulator, but you know, look at the end of the day, you have to decide. Do you want to find a solution to every problem or do you want to find a problem with every solution? We are focused on finding a solution to every problem. Because I believe solutions are there. And you can count on us to want to be creative, to want to be constructive, and frankly, to be determined to keep working, to find the solutions that will get the good out of this, and then make those benefits available to everybody.
0: Watch this space. Brad, you couldn't be clearer on that. Great to chat to you, sir, as always. Um, it's always exciting times, but I think this uh, moment, perhaps more so than ever, um, we'll speak again soon. Thank you so much. And as always. Again. yeah. Thank, thank you, <laughs> thank Julia. You. Thank you. OK, that just about wraps up the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at Jay Chatterley CNN. Connect the World is up next. Thank you.